So one of my favorite songs ever written is by Lady Gaga, and she sings about there's something about my cool Nebraska guy. When mm-hmm. you go back to Nebraska like you just did, do you feel cool? Do you feel like the metropolitan out-of-towner who you know is going to tell tell the homies a thing or two about the world? I was talking with my dad about it. I just kind of feel more and more like a tourist yeah. or, or a rain dog. That's when rain washes away all the scents that a dog is used to, mm. and they're kind of confused until they can get their bearings back. That's the way it feels now. Yeah, I feel that way a lot when I go back home, but there's nothing like being there with family. That's the one thing that I think ties us to geographic places, uh, family, and that's what I've really uh, began to feel here. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in Minnesota, not only with uh, friends, that sort of same family, but, you know, a professional family. And one of the members right. of our professional family is the Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. You can learn more at Schubert.org. A little bit more uh, on Schubert Club here in a few minutes, but let, let, let's go back down to Nebraska, you know, where, where, where you're where you're the cool guy, where you're the, the Me- metropolitan. Well, what, what sorts of stuff were you getting into down there? I mean, I, I guess uh, you didn't make it to a performance by the uh, Omaha Symphony. Did, did that not make it into the schedule? It did not. <laughs> but what did? The main thing was to go down to the Applejack Festival in Nebraska City. Now, what is the is, Applejack Festival? Uh, it's your fall festival, but they call it the Applejack Festival because... Um, uh, Nebraska City is the home of Arbor Day. There's orchards oh, okay. all over the place. They have all sort. You know, you can go down and get cider, honey crisp. Who, what guy came up with this idea of you go out here in the orchard, you pick the apples, and then you come back and That's pay me? That's what I'm saying. Because down south, it was all about uh, the strawberries. You could mm. go down and pick your own strawberries. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, it seems like that's a bush that snakes would like. And then it seemed like <laughs> yeah. y'all need to be picking it anyway. So I'm okay. Mm. But yeah, <laughs> but you know the vibe, and you know you can go down and get your caramel apples and your caramel corn, and and you know just it, it's a it, do the hay bale ride. You know the, all that fall stuff. Where it's great. where your flannel? I guess when the weather is appropriate. It sounds it like you said 95. it was too hot. Yeah, yeah. But the main thing going on there was the uh, big car show. It goes on for like six blocks. Nothing but cherry condition uh, restorations, resto mods, supercars. Mm-hmm. It was great. My dad has a story about every one of them. What kind of music were they showcasing down there at the Applejack Festival car show? Interesting, you should say, because there was uh, like where the trophies were going to be handed out. There was a lot of 50s, 60s being played. Mm-hmm. But at one end, where the rides and the caramel corn and all that kind of stuff was, and the games, uh, there was... I was a little surprised to hear a banjo backing up 99 Problems. Like 99 Problems, the the Jay-Z? See, now that's what oh, I was thinking. Oh, y'all down there getting crunk. See, now. <laughs> and it was <laughs> oh, only. lit. It was 11 in the morning, too. <laughs> you said by Hugo. Right. Okay, let's, yeah. let, let's, let's see what he's talking about here. If you haven't got problems, I feel bad for your son. I got 99 problems and a bitch ain't one. Bad for your son, I got 99 problems. 
The sentiments expressed by this artist are the sentiments of the artist. Don't y'all email me about that B word. And do not assume that we support or... Very, very interesting that this artist has taken a tagline or, you know, one of the major motifs, you know, picked picked exactly from this Jay-Z composition, exactly what he wants, but then, you know, does everything else elsewhere and probably, you know, has no problem with people thinking it's his own creation. Well, maybe I should not judge that because I don't, I don't know the man, but what was, so you know this as a Jay-Z tune. Right. What, what was your reaction to seeing? <laughs> well, first off, what, 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 what were people's reactions? Were they dancing? Were they getting into it? He's only using, you know, the only familiar part about it is the hook. The hook, right. And then all of his rhymes are his own. And I didn't recognize that part. But there were women dancing to it <laughs> and, and, and going along with the 99 Problems one. And I just, there was one that came by and I felt like reaching out and just tapping and going, you know this is Jay-Z, right? You know that this is Jay-Z? <laughs> and you know he's talking about you. <laughs> this, this song came out almost 20 years ago. Yeah, 2003. Right. Yeah. So, um, but that sort of an adaptation playing at a festival scenario in Nebraska City is very on brand. Say more. The, um, you know, sort of the new style of hillbilly or bluegrass music with that thumpy beat mm-hmm. behind it, you know, and maybe even some electronic mixed into it. Sure. Yeah, that's, that is kind of a, yeah, that would, that fits very well in Nebraska City. Do you feel like you have the, as you say, hillbillies <laughs> who are the more traditionalists who don't want to hear the electronics, who don't want to hear the heavy beat, maybe don't even want to hear the Jay-Z hooks and they probably don't know it anyway but do, do you think those folks exist in those musical communities yeah they were down at the other end of the street oh see they said no, yeah. no keep that over there mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the older crew you know they go up there and listen to it and, and it was at a lower volume you know okay <laughs> <laughs> so what would broad education about uh not only the historical uh black roots of roots music of you know again what you have described as hillbilly music you know what do you think a a broad understanding of that would do and not only the historical but even the contemporary as you say there were women dancing to this song who likely did not know this was jay-z with that education i was referring mainly to the misogynistic aspect of that part but do, do you think education around uh the the how can i say the mix of influences that give these sounds life do you think education about the roots of 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 those influences would have an impact anywhere one way or another i think that it would open up the door for them to say okay then i do like some music by a black person (laughs) is that wrong this is gonna be a long night (laughs) (laughs) is that wrong is that wrong i guess I guess not. I guess not. So let's expand. <laughs> that tickles me. So let's expand that to the arts and and to so-called classical music and how we want to redefine that thing. Yes, there are people who are going to run out of the concert hall screaming as soon as something like 99 Problems mm-hmm. <laughs> hits yeah. the stage. But yeah. we don't even have to go that far. Just acknowledging folk uh, traditional blues, gospel, all those things as America's own classical music. Do we have a chance? You know, 
with all of the folks who are going to leave the concert hall when we start identifying those types of traditional musics as classical? Do you think, you know, that impact is going to outweigh the impact of the folks who will come into the spaces and who will be engaged by something that sounds a little familiar to them? Yeah, I know. And I'm just really nervous about making a definite statement about it because I've been wrong in the past on some things and right on others. And I don't know if we want to say that this example of a Jay-Z song coming around almost 20 years later again, and maybe somebody will figure it out. Or maybe uh, one of these people that was there dancing and rapping along with it has a parent that says, you know, this is a (laughs) Jay-Z joint, so let's go and listen to that. I don't know what's happening, you know, uh, behind the scenes. Maybe it's an assumption that people don't know it. So I guess really the question to ask you have a rap song that has been transformed into this bluegrass hit down in Nebraska City. Mm-hmm. Can the same happen on the classical side? Is there a type of transformation of a hip hop tune? Or, well, let's stick with that. Is there a transformation of hip hop that can be palatable to the pearls and furs and all of those people at the opera and at the concert hall it's it's possible rap to bluegrass surely it must be possible rap to so-called classical it's possible yeah i mean we got the ill harmonic that's about all i can think of though that's that's about as close as i can get to it i also want to say that um i use the word hillbilly very (laughs) you're covering yourself in a very positive way go ahead and give you a natural (laughs) yes because it's a very positive word because i come from hillbillies my family claims that word with some pride just as you know there's people that claim the word redneck with pride um so i'm not dissing on any resident down there um but i want to say that it is possible but just like you said, the um, all the people that we will <laughs> lose running to the exit, the pearl clutchers running. <laughs> so uh, that that just means that we're going to be we're we're going to have a transition period. I think we're in that transition period, like just like it happened in between the classical and the romantic eras back in the day. And there's resistance in that in that transition. Yep, I think it's exciting to be in the mode of transition to to live in this time. I think it's even more exciting to have a platform where we really get to dig in to those transitions Indeed. and and have the dialogue surrounding it. Let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 166. Thanks so much for tuning in to all of the returning listeners. Thank you for your continued support. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for each and every one of you. Thank you so much for supporting this project and this initiative. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and turns it on its head. Our goal is to affix more aesthetics, more stories, and more conversations to that phrase, at least music, stories, and conversations that haven't been affixed to that phrase before. To learn more about the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses, to donate, and to learn more about some of the people who helped make Triloquy possible, 
go to our website, triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support from each and every one of you, Triloquy is made possible in part by Schubert Club. They're kicking off their 140th season with a multi-sensory installation called Sound Sculpture. It's an interactive musical instrument made out of illuminated building blocks, and you can check it out at the Landmark Center in downtown St. Paul. It was created by Boston-based Interdisciplinary Masery Studios. Uh, A little bit from Ryan Edwards from Masery Studios. He says, I am thrilled to be sharing space with this incredible team of Twin Cities-based artists. They have joined me in this inquiry asking, what is an instrument? As we look at both the most human answers to that question, as well as those more technologically driven. You can check out the show, What is an Instrument? This Sunday uh, at the Schubert Club downtown St. Paul. Uh, and you can learn more at schubert.org. I also want to send a big Thanks and congratulations to the American Composers Forum. Uh, I'm on the board of the American Composers Forum, and we had a really incredible racial equity summit this past week. You can learn more about everything that ACF is doing in line with uh, equitable uh, moves for racial equity at composersforum.org. Also, shout out to the American Composers Orchestra. I'll be in New York this week doing my thing. So if you're in New York and you see me on the streets, Cross to the other side. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on what my face is looking like, I guess. (laughs) And I also want to just send a really quick uh, shout out to Paviel. Speaking of, you know, members of the uh, local family here in Minnesota, we had a really great conversation at the Racial Equity Summit. And one of the things that we were getting into is what unity can look like. When we talk about anti-racism, when we talk about uh, dismantling white supremacy and, and just really uncovering what whiteness is, It's easy for those conversations to sound divisive, but the longer I do this work and and what Paviel was saying, the longer that she does this work, the easier it is for her to traverse those conversations because there are people from all walks of life who can have those conversations and not get completely bent out of shape every time someone is saying the word black or the word white or something, you know? And so I just wanted to mention that it it won't have a a specific accidental or anything this week, but I, I really loved engaging that conversation. The longer we do this show, Scott, and uh, the longer I do some of the other work that I do, the closer I get to seeing that truth. You know, the the future is a place that we can only get to together. So let's try. But the thing is, you know, if I'm going to sit next to you, you go, you have to be willing to sit next to me and I'm not going to reshift myself or, mm-hmm. or any of that. Anyway, shout out to Paviel, shout out to everyone at uh, Schubert Club, ACF, ACO, and shout out to each and every one of you for joining us again this week. Let's hop into movement one. So we haven't done any naturals in a while. For folks who may be newer to this show, we come in the first movement uh, by checking our accidentals. We have stories or conversations that we give a sharp, more positive sort of ideas or, or conversations, ones that we give a flat. I don't think we have any flats this week, Mm-mm. but we, we tend to, <laughs> we offer plenty of flats. And, and then every now and again, if there's a, a conversation or a story where we're not quite sure what it gives or if we want to make a correction or an addition to something previously discussed on the Trilogy podcast, we give it a natural. So I'm going to get us started in this first movement this week with a couple of naturals. First of all, 
Shout out to Lemmy Pulliam. We're going to have part two of my conversation with him uh, in this week's third movement. But as um, I was uh, quality checking <laughs> Triloquy last week and listening to the transition into uh, the 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 conversation that I had with Lemmy, oh my gosh, his voice just really moved me. I had to stop mm-hmm. what I was doing for a second and really clutch my pearls for a minute. My first thought was, you know, how he was talking about leaving the industry for a long time and coming back. You know, I say, you know, y'all y'all better be lucky that he decided to come back in the first place. Yeah. Because goodness gracious, what a voice! I and, know, I know you went back and listened as well. Right. Um. And it was in the car too. So. So it was up really loud. <laughs> I just had a, a chance to really spend some time and only focus on that. And mm-hmm. like when he was talking about coming back into the business and feeling like that I can, I, I, I have a place, I deserve this place that I've reached, you know, this, yeah. because that kind of relates to what I'm going to be bringing in in the second movement. So there okay. was just a whole bunch of synergy about that opus and Lemmy's interview. Yep. Very impactful. And and his singing voice, too. Just such a huge presence on stage. Oh, yeah. So we'll be hearing from him again in this week's third movement. I actually have one more quick natural. So in last week's Triloquy, we were talking in a very nuanced way about uh, the passing of the former monarch of England, Queen Elizabeth II. And you asked me a question that I wish I had answered a little differently. Basically, you were like, well, what do you say to the people who say, well, Queen Elizabeth did uh, play a role in decolonizing certain countries and pulling out and 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 X, Y, and Z. Um, I think in the moment, I said, you know, that's something I can't really speak to because I don't know Queen Elizabeth II as a decolonizer. I know her as someone who mm-hmm. has maintained uh, certain structures. You know, after chewing on that for a little while, after letting that marinate, a quote from Malcolm X came to mind, and and, and we'll, we'll we'll listen to it here. I will never say that progress is being made. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. Mm-hmm. You pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that the blow that the blow made, and they haven't even begun to pull a knife out, much less try and pull, uh, heal the wound. You have, have you have? They won't even admit the knife is there. <laughs> you know, and that's really the thing. I feel like we have played. I've played that clip on Triloquy before, but we really need to listen to what he said. Even if you pull the knife all the way out of my back, that is not progress mm-hmm. because healing needs to take place. So you know, as we were saying last week, rest in peace to Queen Elizabeth II, and the knife was never even completely pulled out in the first place. You know, as Malcolm X said, there's still debate on whether there is a knife in the back of marginalized people around the world. So that that is just the truth that I hope that we can take from just the concept Mm -hmm. of monarchies in the first place. Um, But at the same time, and I said this at the Racial Equity uh, Summit on, on Saturday with ACF, systems are made of people. We we tend to think of, of systems and structures in this abstract third person sort of way, but they are built and maintained by individuals working in tandem. And, you know, when you're an individual who is working in your own way to continue to subjugate a people, a mm-hmm. country and, and their culture, that is not progress, or I, I can't name progress if a little bit of that so-called decolonization happened over there, but not over here. So I just wanted to make sure I said that this this week, because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I like to be honest in, in, in what I deliver. And that that's what came back to mind after listening back. Any 
Any follow up before we move on? <laughs> no, I think that you. That, that's good. Okay. I think you got the dust out of those corners okay. very well. Okay, very good. <laughs> Bet your ass. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and uh, get into this week's actual accidentals. We'll uh, we'll start with what you brought in. What accidental does this get? Well, this is one of those instances where I'd like to give it a flat, but I don't want to play uh, a f- that flute, <laughs> that sound in relation to the death of Ramsey Lewis. I want to say. Well, we're celebrating the life. Um, we so, can put it that way. Yeah, we can say uh, let's give it a natural here because um, uh, Ramsey Lewis was a incredible Grammy winning and Grammy uh, elsewhere Grammy nominated uh, pianist and composer who uh, was um, steeped in the music of the Black Church, uh, also got some training in classical, and uh, ultimately found his voice in the jazz realm. What's um, what's sad to me is that this is just not a name that I know. You're you're familiar with the mm-hmm. music of of Ramsey Lewis. How did that come about for you? Listen to the radio, or or how how do you know who this is? When I first got started in radio in 1988 or 89, I was uh, working overnight as a jazz host at KVNO in Omaha, Nebraska, and that was just one of the ones that came through on rotation. Mm. You know, uh, overnight had a deep playlist. You know, we. We we played some really great deep cuts. Yeah, so you would consider his music deep cuts then. The one that he's known for is yeah. There's mm. the the one that he's known for is called the In Crowd. It was uh, his remake of the Dobie Gray uh, piece, but he pepped it up. And in the iconic recording of it, um, they had only had two rehearsals. Oh yeah, and they start playing it for the crowd, and the crowd is all getting into it, and you can hear it in the recording. They're clapping and they're creating their own intervals. And then he said, by the end of it, the people are up and they're, they're dancing in the aisles. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that recording here in a, a couple minutes, but I'll, I'm going to read a little bit here from uh, the Washington Post. The headline is Ramsey Lewis, pianist with crossover hit, The In Crowd, dies at 87. It says here, Ramsey Lewis, a Grammy-winning pianist who had a major crossover pop hit in the 60s, was a central figure in combining jazz with electronic music and other styles. Uh, he died September 12th at his home in Chicago, the death of undisclosed causes was announced on his website. Somebody on Twitter this morning, I can't remember who it was. I'm sorry that I'm not remembering. I was just scrolling as I was getting ready for uh, my day. And they said, "What? What are? what's our obsession with knowing someone's cause of death? And now I'm going to be thinking about that more and more as I read stories like these. What is the purpose? And, you know, no, no shade necessarily to the writer of this, but what is the purpose of making it clear that we don't know how he died or he died of this? What, why, why do we need that information? It's the morbid fascination with, oh, was it grisly? Was it a violent death? Did they, did they go in their sleep? Or even more accurately, can I judge them? Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, was it, is it, was it a drug overdose? No sympathy. No sympathy for you. You, you. Was it a suicide? You're weak. Yeah, so people can judge. Considering your relationship with his music, is there any cause of death that would alter your opinion on on who he is? No. Yeah. None at all. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll I'll continue here. There's there's another point uh, in this in this article that I thought was really interesting. It says here uh, that he had several more pop jazz hits, including the million selling singles "Hang On," "Sloopy," and "Wade in the Water," mm-hmm. both from 1966. With his growing success, however, Mr. Lewis faced a critical backlash from some writers and musicians who thought he was diluting his musical talent to score pop hits with unchallenging material. What do you think about that? Diluting his musical talent. There's a quote from jazz pianist Kenny Kirkland who says, I think you should play whatever music you can play. And I would expand that out to say whatever music you want to play. And even Edward Elgar once was accused of the very same thing, you know, the pomp and circumstance marches and all that and and dance hall tunes. Mm-hmm. And he said, what? People want to dance. I wrote music for them to do that. Why, why are you hating on me for, for doing <laughs> something that the crowd wants? Yeah. And and it's funny that you say that throughout this article, there are excerpts from uh, some of his uh, previous interviews before he passed away. In an article from 2006, uh, he says, we wanted to play something fun, maybe something danceable. That is something that we need to get back into, actually having a physical relationship with the music that we're listening to, not just an oral relationship or even an emotional relationship, because emotional relationships with music can be, you know, very important and are very important. What a mu- what a piece of music makes you feel or what a piece of music makes you remember. But what a piece of music makes you do mm-hmm. in the moment is also really important. And we don't get much of that in the so-called classical arts. To make it a little bit more real too, um, you know, I often think about the lineage you know the the way that music uh, is is passed on just because new bands are formed, and his second band, the drummer, went on to be a founder of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. So think about all the history that is being carried on through the veins of Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, I, it's fascinating. It, it's one of those one of those things. Like I, I said with the with the woman wanting to ask her if she knew that that was a Jay-Z track that she was dancing to, right. or that at least that was the, the influence. You know, it gives you an idea of, of where it came from, what its history is. Yep, it's fascinating yep. to me. He, he goes on to talk about uh, the hit single, uh, The In Crowd, uh, in this interview from 2006. He said, I mean, if you listen to that record, we didn't coerce or ask any of those people to join in. We started playing the song and there was dancing in the aisles. Mm-hmm. It's that is that simple. What is the aversion to that? The classical space, the opera space, as it still exists today, is one that not only requires silence (laughs) and Mm -hmm. holding completely fucking still, but one that expects Mm -hmm. that. It seems like we're a long way from folks dancing in those aisles or 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 snapping their finger, tapping their toe, because the music doesn't bring that on. Again, I just read here, he said... If you listen to the record, we didn't coerce or ask any of those people to join in, but they just did. I don't know. We we uh we're just happy with that being the way that things are over on our side of the musical world, you know, having to be coerced, not you know, to come to the concert in the first place, much less to, you mm-hmm. know, actually respond to the music in 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 some way. We have to take more of a more of a cue from from folks like the late Ramsey Lewis, if we want to move this thing forward. That's my idea anyway. 
He leaves behind five children, 17 grandchildren, and get this, three great-grandchildren. Wow. What a life lived. Wow, good for him. Well, uh, I'll, I'll put this link in the description for y'all to check out again. Rest in peace to Ramsey Lewis. I'm reading the, from the end of this article here. He says, all music is folk music. This is from an interview he did in 2010. He goes on to say, music comes from the folks and is meant to move the folks and connect with the folks. At 75 years old, I finally categorized my music. It's music for the folks. This reminds me of the conversation, sort of the historical stories around Western classical music that we have around uh, concerning formalism, especially in Russia when Stalin was shitting on Shostakovich saying, okay, well, your music is formalist. It's not music for the people. They don't understand this. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how our conception of, you know, USSR Stalinist regime offered more freedom and and more attention to what the everyday person is listening to and their interaction to it than we do today in these so-called United States in this free society. We don't we don't care about people actually having a relationship with what's played in opera houses and concert halls. We want them to sit there and be quiet right. until it's it's right. over and only clap when when it's when it's time to. Is it too late for Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, you know, 50 to 80% of what you platform as a classical radio host. Is it too late for that to be transformed into music for the folks? My idea is that, as I repeat over and over, we have to leave that so-called canon behind because it's not music for the folks. It's not music that most people can actually have some sort of reaction to in the same way as they've had reactions over the generations to the music of Ramsey Lewis. The optimist in me wants to say, sure, it's possible because, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And I don't want to uh, uh, be negative on the on our own mission. But through that but, optimism, how can it be? How can Tchaikovsky turn into that or Beethoven or or whoever? We, we, we can we can idealize maybe one day it, it will or, or could be. But how could that music possibly be that? How could that music possibly get people out of their seats and into the aisles dancing oh, and having a good time? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know I, either. I don't, yeah, I don't have an answer for you. Yeah, but um, obviously, there's also the days where I'm pessimistic and I'm thinking, yeah, it's way too late. You know, we've that ship has already sailed. But you've caught me on a on a buoyant streak lately. I've done some self care and you know had some time off, and I'm feeling a little bit optim more optimistic about the chances now. Yeah, I'm. I don't mean to come with cynicism, but I also come with a little bit of realism, and I just don't see it. I believe that we have to just move away from that stuff, you know, and there will be people saying that you're diluting this or you're dumbing down this. Ramsey Lewis himself mm -hmm. spoke to, to to that criticism that he got over the course of his career, but at the end of the day, we're saying his name. Right. You know, there were many, I'm sure, incredibly... Tra uh, classically trained, you know, Chopin experts and and all all of those folks who are around when when uh, his music was making people dance. We're not saying their names. Mm -hmm. We don't even know their names, and ultimately, they don't really even matter to the conversation of the evolution of music because they were more married to tradition. They were more married to structure and what you know they felt like they were supposed to do when it comes to music, and not actually engaging the folks. As Ramsey, as the late Ramsey Lewis says, not to, I don't know, maybe, and that sounds a little harsh, 
you know, my, hearing myself say that, but that, that's just the truth of the matter. That that's, that's just all it is. We're talking about impact mm-hmm. or no impact. And sticking with the same old has proven to not have impact. Conversely, doing what people will critique as diluted or dumbed down, watered yeah, down, yeah. that's the impact. That's what we're talking about here. And that's what the world is talking about as we celebrate the life and accomplishments of Ramsey Lewis. Uh, he was given the uh, moniker of the, the father of soul jazz. So that's not nothing. All right. Well, we're going to move on from this uh, accidental. Say a couple more words about uh, the in-crowd recording that we're going to hear a little bit of. The in-crowd is uh, sort of a, a cover and a quickening of tempo from the Dobie Gray uh, single, The In-Crowd, from the show Shindig. top of it all you know you have to remember the fact that these men this this trio they couldn't just leave the show and eat at any diner they wanted Mm-mm. or go and and lay down their head in any hotel they wanted so with that being the framework for their existence uh, at least a part of it they can still create this music and make people dance dare i say even white people in the audience were, were, were down there dancing sure i'm sure you know um they're, they're just there's just so much more respect that we need to put on the history of musics here in the United States. So there's no reason why I have a, a master's in music and don't really know the work of Ramsey Lewis. But I can tell you all about a Bach motet and, and all of all of that stuff. Just every, every time you bring in one of these artists who I hadn't heard of, my mind jumps right there. What a shame it is mm-hmm. that we aren't saying what we need to say. I'll put the responsibility on myself. We aren't quite saying what we need to say to make large institutions and small institutions alike understand that truth. This is music, and this is music that had an impact and music that can continue to have an impact under that renewed frame of American classical music. I guess it is what it is, huh? No, I can see you. (laughs) I'm right here with you. All right, well, uh, we're going to have one more accidental this week. I'm going to give this a sharp because I think it's a a really good conversation, a very prescient conversation, something that I've brought up in certain sorts of ways before that, you know, people tell me that I sound crazy, but here it is uh, in in print. Uh, The title of this is A Conversation on Racism and Computer Music. Before we get into this, I remember a while ago, I was talking to you about the racism in uh, computer algorithms, especially when it comes to music and even podcasting. Mm-hmm. Have your um, ideas evolved over time? I'm sure once upon a time, if somebody told you a computer is racist, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you, know, you would laugh at How that. How can you do that? Here we are, you know in the 21st century, and we're seeing the way algorithms work certain ways. We were talking about F and Mecca a few weeks ago. Y'all got computers out here saying the N-word carrying Mm -hmm. on. So the idea of computer music being racist, at least the structure around it, I'm sure is something that a lot of folks 
can't quite understand or wrap their minds around, but it's a real thing. And we have professionals, experts in the field speaking to this, this conversation. Uh, it's, it's, uh, um, transcribed. I'll have a link in the description, but it features the words of the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker and Joy Goodry, who have both been on the Triloquy podcast. Shout out to them, as well as Jesse Cox and Yvette Janine Jackson, who I've had the pleasure of actually collaborating a little bit uh, with them. I work with American Composers Orchestra, so it's great to uh, see her name here as well. I'm going to read a little bit of the preface here, it says, and it's called for contributions for the fall 2021 issue of Array Journal. The editors asked why the International Classical Music Awards has so few members who identify as black, given the considerable debt that the field of computer music owes to musical and technological innovations of black artists. Again, let's pull over again real quick. When you were taking your Pro Tools class, I remember you're saying that you would listen to hip hop specifically and recognize some of the techniques mm -hmm. or, or how something was done. Mm -hmm. Maybe they took the same, you know, eight week, 12 week class as you did, or maybe they really innovated the software to do something new and do something um, in, impactful. What is your reaction to the idea of black artists being at the ground level of not only American music in general, but the idea of computer music and mixing technology with music. I'll be honest with you, I have never thought of it from that direction before. Yeah, I, me neither, I but have to say. If if we're going to look back over history and the way things have happened, um, obviously a black producer is going to innovate for the artists that they're producing and they're going to find things that the software can do that I'm sure that the engineers probably weren't anticipating you know mm -hmm. like the chopped and you know the repetitious um chopped, chopped and screwed maybe exactly yeah. that, that's what i'm talking about um i i i don't th i don't think it would be a big assumption to think that it was something innovated and then the engineers heard it and made a couple keystrokes to, to make it easier. And then all of a sudden we're having an award ceremony for this type of music and ain't nobody black there, you know? Maybe. Um, let, let's let, let's read a little bit from this. So uh, one of uh, Yvette's opening responses to the idea of why there aren't more black folks and people of color in this specific corner of music. Uh, she says, in the past couple of years, I've been asked a similar question by different groups. How can we attract more people of color to our organization? My response may be cynical, but why should people want to join your organization? It's one thing to put up the invitation. You're welcome to join. Because I think a lot of people don't feel welcomed by many organizations, but don't expect for people who may have been historically excluded to be excited to then join just because the doors have suddenly right. opened. It's interesting how every single conversation, so many of the conversations anyway, return to that. It's, well, what's in it for people of color? Why should they be engaged by this thing? It just seems like a, a, a repeating point. That's me, no matter what we're talking about. And it goes through other parts of the article, too. For example, when they're talking about institutions, Joy comes out and says that, you know, you can offer a fellowship. That's great. But we're going to need more money afterward to deal with the trauma from the fellowship. <laughs> Listen. So you have to remember, if you belong to a predominantly white institution, that just because you start some sort of a program that is aimed at people of color, it doesn't necessarily mean that the one you're going to administer 
has that positive impact that you're thinking yep. about. And isn't that where the white savior idea comes in? Somebody thinks that they're doing the right thing when right. in fact it's a detriment. Right. And right. so and that and that's what at PRPD, one of the conferences, uh, there was a gentleman talking about this in the idea of a dinner party. If you're gonna ask a black person over to your house for dinner, that's great, but don't serve them something they can't eat, you know, that they don't like or something. So you gotta find yeah. out. Yeah. You know, you have to be um um not sympathetic. You have to be uh What's the word that I'm after? Sensitive. You know, you have to be sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Joy also says here, maybe we should make black coding camps for music. I've started learning how to do this. I've always had a lot of respect for you all, but it's so hard. Ableton is so hard. Everyone wants to charge so much money to teach me how to do it. And they talk in these huge words that I have no idea what they're saying. It's just been coined in this way that makes it almost impossible for people to even know that most, if not all of this music comes from blackness. I I have to agree with what Joy is saying there. I'm good with, you know, my little programs to you know do triloquy and produce the little bit of music that I do but it does seem like the language the uh the money that you have to spend on this equipment is just built to keep its you know innovators out or, mm-hmm. or the or, or the people who look like the innovators to to keep us out you have a you have a push pad mm-hmm. you described it to me as buying a new instrument and when someone says buy a new instrument that means you spend a little bit of money yep yeah, I got it half price through eBay. Oh, but that's so only... even half price. You, <laughs> yeah, I saved wow. up. Wow. I had to save up, and he's right. Ableton is hard. Pro Tools is hard, but just it, it has so much more features. So it's deep with features, and it's only through use and study that you really get your arms around it. The Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker speaks to Pro Tools uh, here by saying, why does academia hate Pro Tools and why are they complaining that it crashes all the time? Because people are telling them you can't run it on a computer that doesn't have these very minimum requirements. But the price of Pro Tools for the student is not very expensive. It's $10 a month. You know, I don't have a whole bunch of experience with Pro Tools, but it sounds like the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker is trying to make the case for mm-hmm. the technology. When I started at NPR, I forget. Uh, I think it's, I guess it's called Dalit. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have that digital audio workspace, and then you have Pro Tools. I prefer Dalit because I thought it was a little bit more user friendly, and I I created what I would say are some pretty good things uh, with that software. It was still the expectation though to go to Pro Tools if it's you know a nationally syndicated something, or if, if this is something that a lot of people are are gonna hear. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, the outcome was the same. I almost thought that NPR might you know be in bed with Pro Tools or something, getting a getting a kickback. You you told me that's not the case, but but no, we pay. So, so, do, so, do you share? I, I guess it sounds like you share a sentiment with the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. Pro Tools, as difficult as it is, uh-huh. being something that at the end of the day isn't all that unuser friendly. There's just this facade built around it being that. Sure, and I agree with her a hundred percent that um, when you run Pro Tools on a Mac platform, it's one of the most stable. Uh, digital audio workstations out there. Mm-hmm. I've had very few crashes. And then I was able to go in and just, you know, you do, you mess with your settings until you find something that works with the system that you have. You know, it can be a, a very uh, entry level MacBook can run Pro Tools. Yeah. It, it's going to chug along like right. a potato wagon, but you know, that's why it, it's always best to have 
the, the, the most horse, horsepower that you can. Something else that they go into here, and again, I'll let y'all read this on your own time, but you know, there's the idea that there are certain instrumental sounds, certain aesthetics that are taken out of their cultural context, let's say a conga or, you know, for, for example, taken out of this cultural context, put into this technology. And now we have a button to say, oh, OK, well, listen to our conga or, or listen to how we have used this. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about that? It's, it's, it's almost like the idea of digital or electronic appropriation, mm. if, if, if I could use wow. that phrase. That's that's interesting. Um, I'm going to go in the direction of Ableton being more that way because really? when, yeah, because when you create a beat or you use a, a MIDI instrument over in Pro Tools, you can pick it out. You, sure. you know that it's a MIDI and you just accept it because that's the what we have. But in Ableton, there are hundreds of thousands of actual samples of the instrument being played mm-hmm. in different tones and keys and such and that's how a producer will go in and manipulate things that way literally just moving one sample of a conga you know uh, that that takes a lot of work that takes a lot of skill and i guess you know anyone can play a conga we you know maybe we shouldn't create ownership around that specific instrument as an example but i guess i'm to to make another example i'm thinking about the idea of an indigenous voice with powwow drum, for mm-hmm. example. So even if an indigenous person was, you know, paid generously to create these samples that uh, folks can use in in these programs, I would still feel funny. I would feel a way about creating a piece of music that includes that, and I know nothing about the context of those sounds other than it's listed here in this program you know, Native American drumming or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it says, where do we, where do we draw the line? I don't feel that way about an electric guitar sample. I would probably feel that way about, you know, some indigenous musicking sound. It, it seems like it's a, a case by case thing. Just go with your, go, go with your spirit, go with your convictions. It does sound that way. I haven't thought about it as, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I'd have to spend some time with it. I haven't thought about it from that direction. But in this moment, you know, would you press that? <laughs> would would you press that in an in indigenous drumming button? Or? I would not. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I don't know if I would either. No. Would you press the? <laughs> okay, here we go. Would you press the N-word button? <laughs> You're not saying not. it. <laughs> I would not. No, because I'm still the one pressing the button. That's true. That's true. Anyway, this is this is very interesting. I'll I'll let y'all uh, uh, read the rest of this. Uh, it'll be linked in the description. Huge shout out to all of the contributors to this. Again, especially members of the Triloquy family, the Honorable Elizabeth A. Baker and Joy Goodry. I have had an incredible, incredible time becoming more familiar with the music of Yvette Janine Jackson over the course of my time so far with the American Composers Orchestra. So we're going to transition into the second movement by listening to a little bit of one of her works. This is a 2021 composition called I've Ever Seen. It features solo vibraphone here as performed by Colleen Bernstein. Let's take a listen here.
watching Colleen perform it here on YouTube, so we, we know it's a you know human, uh, a human making these sounds. But if if you weren't watching, do you know if you would be able to discern that from a computer, from someone pressing a button versus someone actually performing? Sometimes I hate to see yet say yes across the board because I've been wrong before. Yeah, and I've seen people online get torn apart for saying. Hey, it's too bad they this sounds great. Too bad they didn't use real horns here. And then mm -hmm. somebody comes back and goes and says, Excuse um, me. <laughs> I played on that. And yeah. Well then that, that's when you buy it back. You said, Well, I guess you put should have put a little sauce on that. It sounds like a machine playing. <laughs> but that's you know, I'm 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 never afraid of being argumentative. <laughs> <laughs> right. Except of course here in the second movement where Scott and I showcase a little bit of music we've been spending some time with. Uh, how about you go first this week? What have you been listening to? I've been spending a lot of time with the song by Ray LaMontagne and only because I was trying to play it for my father in the living room of the home that I grew up in when I was down there visiting. And trying for, to play it on an instrument. I was playing it on guitar and you know he, he saw my guitar sitting there and he wanted to hear some music and uh, I started to play it and for some reason I couldn't get through it. It was very triggering in that moment. Hmm. I felt like I, I got gut punched from a se uh, from several different directions. Mainly, it started to make me think about all the things that I've gone through these past 30 years in this business to, to turn around and see some of the accomplishments, some of the successes. Um, it made me feel like I made the the right choice to to follow this mission but there was also it was also mixed in with um uh, it, it was almost like looking in the the mirror and realizing just exactly how beaten up i was hmm. and it frightened me to think about how beat up i felt and everything that i've walked through trying to keep my eye on this goal and and i I choked. I, I couldn't play it. I couldn't even play the music. And and every time uh, I listen to it, it makes me think about the things that I sacrificed and traded to come to the point where I am right now. Now the rain is going to bruise the skies turning gold. Like the sky, my soul is also turning. Turning from the at last and all I left behind Could it be that I'm finally learning The land I'm deserving Of love and a peaceful heart Won't tear myself apart No more for trying Died a lion to myself Trying to buy what can't be bought Talk more about these goals that you've been working on all of these years. We, we can spend a lot of time talking about the sacrifices, but what, what has your vision been focused on as you think about all of the hits you've taken over the years and, and all of the sacrifices you've made? What's the destination? I spent the last drive when I moved, the last final drive up, telling myself, this is your opportunity to do some great things. And the idea wasn't for myself, but for this medium and for this music, for public radio to stay relevant. And it took me this long 
to wind my way through to this position. And it has cost. I have paid to get here. And my work has become even more... I'm walking a tightrope right now, Garrett. And I'm taking a lot of hits from a lot of different sides. And all I can do is look at what I think this goal is of actual equity Mm -hmm. of of serving the community that i am in it's it's an honor for me to do that and i have to i with all of the hits that i take all of the slings and arrows from these different directions i keep my eye on that vision of what i hope that it can be and i keep my head up and i just keep walking toward it you almost make me feel bad about the knives that I throw and the arrows that I shoot, because it's very easy for some like for someone like me to say, "Well, you know, folks like you have been in this biz for thirty years, and where are we? Mm-hmm. What what have we? You know, what what has actually happened?" Uh, I can also, you know, if we, if we want to make it, you know, very specific and personal, I know again what programming looked like at the radio station you worked at when I came. And I know what it looks like now. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to not, and I'm sure a lot of pe- other people feel this way, it's hard for me to not throw those those knives and shoot those arrows sometimes because we aren't talking about abstract ideas of people. We're talking about actual communities, actual individuals in those communities, actual cultures who have been just pushed to the side decade after decade, generation after generation in public radio, in classical music, in in all of these mediums. So what I'm I'm supposed to just, you know, say good job for the the incremental change. I I I I have that feeling you're you're speaking to this through this song. I don't suppose it changes, you know, my my feelings particularly, but I guess it it does offer some some context. I, I can only imagine, you know, some of the hits you were taking in 1990, whatever, you know, as as you were bringing up these conversations, and mm-hmm. you know, we we honor the people who have who have been in this, you know, in this battle of of decolonizing classical music for a long time. You know, I take I take off my proverbial hat to all of those folks look at the same time look look at look at where we are look at look at what we're doing and look at the price that other people have paid mm-hmm. you know who you know the the privilege you have over over some people and and the sacrifices that have been made it's not it's not an easy thing to engage i understand i understand that many more people have gone through much more than i have but you can't think that I'm not going to take the, that. That I'm just going to stop doing the work over there. Of course, that's where the work is. Right, and so that's why I feel like I have to take the things that I hear here and go and apply them where they make sense on the air. That's that's the only thing that I know how to do. And if I and if I do it any other way, then then I'm not helping. Yeah, I'm so, hurting. So have so have the costs been worth it? If someone asks you that question, what's your answer? It's only been recently that I've had the idea that this is possible and that I might be on the right path. But you don't hear me talking about this because I'm I'm over here doing taking all of this and doing it behind the scenes and yep. and and not coming back and bragging about it. Right. So we need to give a little bit more 
grace to what we don't see? I mean, what? How do we? How do we move forward? You know, you're really expressing. You know, you're taking hits. You're you're doing this work, and you know, it's it's not easy. How can folks more vocal, more on the you know out to the front activist side of these conversations? What do you need from us, or or what what would help? You know, from from us, as as you continue to move forward. <laughs> um, I, I've said it a lot. There are people, there are white people out there that are doing everything that they can to make equitable change happen, to be more inclusive. I've seen it and I feel it. And people can call me a sellout and they often do. Um, you don't see me. You don't and you don't see the things that I'm that I'm actually doing behind the scenes. And I I am doing things. Oh, before your time. Ray LaMontagne. When you, you know, when you talk about looking in the mirror and seeing all those <laughs> buffs and bruises, I feel that way at the end of some of these work days. I'll yeah. go in the bathroom and I'll look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my goodness, you yeah. you need to lay down. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> or, you know, for for me, I'm I'm of the age where, you know, it's not just a gray that's kind of poking out. Like they're just little gray communities that just have just my taken whole hold face. Now. <laughs> my whole face is going gray. Anyway, I'm not I'm not all that familiar with Ray Lamontagne, so I'm I'm gonna spend some some more time with this myself. Ray Lamontagne and the Pariah Dogs is that yeah. the name of the band? Well, that was uh, his his band at the time. Yeah. Okay. So um, he's gone through all sorts of different sounds and iterations. You know, and again, it probably depends on the producer. I didn't mean to hijack the second movement like we did with this all i'm saying is that uh th that song landed really hard and it made real um a, a lot of undealt with feelings up to this point so i'm sharing that with you because it's honest and what i've been going through the last five days again speaking to the emotional uh impact of of music when we were talking about ramsey lewis yes it's important to uh and engage what's beyond, you know, actually a uh, platform of music that's danceable or snappable or whatever. But, you know, as as you're speaking to here, that emotional mm -hmm. connection is also very, very important. And we and we can't uh, take for granted what's what's possible when we explore music and engage music in that way, especially when you're playing it yourself. You know, it's one thing to even listen to a song, but I've always you know, I used to love putting the covers on Instagram because I felt like I was having more of a relationship with with the music. I'm actually really? having a conversation with this piece of music and not just listening to it. And of course, that can break open all sorts of emotions and conversations and memories and, and that sort of thing. Anyway. Thank you for letting me go on. That uh, uh, Unloading that was beneficial. Thanks. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Well, you know, when you talk about uh, when you were driving up here to Minnesota and thinking about, okay, well, this is my opportunity. I think about that word opportunity a lot when it comes to my relationship with programming music these days. It's one thing for me to, you know, put together radio programming and and do that sort of thing. I feel that sense of opportunity even more when I'm asked in more intimate settings mm -hmm. to offer some musical context or some musical frameworks. So I've recently uh, taken on, uh, I have too many leadership positions. I, I need to say no next time to, to whoever, but I've taken on a leadership position with uh, the Soka Gakai International Organization. And um, among 
my duties is uh, framing meetings with music. So I've I've always been thinking, okay, how can how can I really make a message or tell a story or or you know uh, please the the masses? You know, as as the as the Lotus Sutra talks about, you know, being pleasing to uh, to all who hear. Um, and it's it's allowed me to 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 be more intentional about what I'm listening to. A, you know, what I'm just familiar with, mm-hmm. but then B, what I'm remembering and thinking about the impact that certain things had on me and wanting to share that with other people. All of that to say, uh, this past weekend, I framed um, one of our Buddhist meetings with music. Uh, as performed by Imani Wins. So I've told the story many times. You know, I brought home the bassoon when I was 12 years old. Nobody knew what this thing was. I, mm. I probably, I Yahoo searched <laughs> bassoon <laughs> and, and got Did to- Did you ask Jeeves? Uh-huh. Uh, and got to a, uh, a Vivaldi bassoon concerto, and I got to the MySpace page of Imani Wins. So mm. Imani Wins has been with me for a long, long, long time. The piece of music that I decided to share with uh, the- the, the folks at this meeting was the Imani wins arrangement of a tune called Afro Blue. I believe it's a, a Mongo Santa Maria tune, Mongo Santa Maria. Mm. Um, but there is a really, really, really incredible uh, recording of it by Imani wins out there. And there's also a really cool live performance of it as performed at the Rainbow Room back in February of, of this year. Uh, uh, Afro Blue has played a, a pivotal role in many of the things that I have programmed and uh, produced on the national level. But I think this live performance of it offers, you know, more of that intimacy, more of that mm. impact. And it was loved by all of the people who I shared it with. So here's a little bit of, of this live performance of Afro Blue by Imani Wins that I've been spending some time with. get into the groove there when i when i look at monica ellis play that bassoon Hmm. you know i just think about what the other possibilities in my life could have been or where i might be if at the beginning of my journey i didn't see a black woman doing what i felt like i've i wanted to do yeah you know uh shout out to the flute player there uh brandon patrick george and the horn player uh, you heard opening that up kevin newton these are two musicians who 
um, and my last um, collaboration with uh, the American Composers Orchestra in New York were in the orchestra, you know, so I get to actually collaborate in that way with with these people, you know. Yeah, I was about to ask if you had ever heard them play live. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. they'll be here in uh, St. Paul in a right. couple Sundays. I'm, right. I'm going to try to go. But, you know, you talk about, you know, proverbially looking in the mirror and seeing all the hits that you've taken, you know, and in this case, you know, I look in this proverbial mirror and just think about the influences and how you'd never know the impact you're having on someone who you you may never you know have contact with of course you know i'm i'm homies with monica ellis now you know sure. and, and a huge fan Isn't that but there's no way she could have known that 12 year old me in memphis tennessee was looking at her do this thing and 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 getting inspired you know i'm sure you've thought about that as a national radio host, you know, you'd never know who's listening. So, you know, all of those feelings and, and all of those emotions around this music, I wanted to bring, you know, to the folks that I chant with. Mm. And um, I wanted to bring it to y'all here on Truiloquy. So be sure to uh, check out Afro Blue. The live performance, I think, is uh, really exceptional. I'll have it linked in the in the description. And let's uh, listen to just a little bit more of, of what they did with this tune before we move on into the third movement. Beethoven who? Chopin, Rachmaninoff who? You know, that, that, that's my point. And then let's talk about this being a cover of a so-called pop tune by Mongo Santa Maria. You know, again, back to Ramsey Lewis. Folks say that he was diluting the art form or, or even what he was capable of by focusing in on that. But it had impact. We have a tune like this that there are some people who may argue that they are diluting something. You know, those people need to go take a nap, you know, for, first of all. But also, there's the impact there. And, you know, there's even that aspect of wanting to dance along with it, you know, sure. to, 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 to move along with it. So it's, it's such, you know, and, and well, look, when my story is written, you know, when, when, when whoever writes my biography after I'm gone, they have to include Imani wins in my story because it is mm. they, they, they are invaluable as an ensemble when it comes to not only transforming the art form but uh, but but really just uh harnessing what representation means and not just physical representation but oral representation cultural representation Imani wins comes up a lot on this podcast because I'm a fan and I definitely been listening to them this week I'm gonna say one more thing before we move on so what's the What's the name of this well, podcast? What's the, what's the name of the podcast? <laughs> Triloquy. Okay. I want to I want to give a special shout out to Mark Dover. I had an attitude when Imani Wins brought on a white musician. I didn't want to say anything. I had but an that question attitude. Was I was upset. At some point, maybe over 2020, 2021, you know, back in the super, super virtual world, I ended up on a on a Zoom <laughs> with Mark Dover. Oh. And I was kind of just you know, talking about that lightly, I wasn't trying to make a gotcha moment, but, you know, basically I asked him, I was like, well, 
surely that's something that you've had to deal with. And it seemed like he honestly did not have to engage that conversation with a lot of people. So is it the fact that no one is saying anything to him and, and we're just talking behind the scenes or, you know, he is surrounded by people who are, are nurturing and, and want to see him succeed. And, you know, he's a hell of a clarinet player that, mm. that can't be denied. So, you know, after, you know, having that conversation with him, we were talking about unity with Pavi Yell at the very beginning, mm. you know, after having that conversation with him, my feelings change definitely. And while I do think there's a lot of power in, a chamber music ensemble being all black, you know, especially as we continue to talk about equity. Yeah, I recognize that power and I trust the members to, you know, engage the people that they engage and pick the right person to be in their midst. And Mark Dover, you know, at the time of, of that clarinet opening was that person. So I, I just want to give a special shout out to Mark Dover. I appreciate the work that you're doing with Imani Wins. You have a very important job because Imani Wins means a lot to a lot of us and so, so far at least you're doing an incredible job anyway shout out to imani wins and shout out to ray lamontaine as well pretty good second movement here yeah well we're moving into the third movement with part two of my conversation with lemmy pulliam we're going to jump back in where lemmy uh is is talking about his re-entry into the field and uh we go on from there talking about <laughs> what the field looks like today and and some of the conversations that uh need to happen so to get us into this third movement we're going to hear a little bit of uh, the Cleveland Orchestra's take on an excerpt from Otello. Lemmy Pulliam is featured here, and with that big voice of his, mm -hmm. you can't miss it. Shout out to Lemmy Pulliam. Thanks for joining me on the Trilogy Podcast. Hope y'all enjoy part two of our conversation here. I was in an elevator uh, with one of my partners and uh, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but we were, we were with Cedric, the entertainer. Okay. And he, he mentioned to Cedric that, Oh, you know, let me spit opera singer. And he's like, really? <laughs> and he even tried to get me to sing. And I was like, Nope, Nope. We're not going there. You know, we're on, we're on duty right now. That's not going to happen. And, uh, yeah, so it was just that's how turned off by it I was at that point that I didn't even want to, you know, use it as a party trick. Yeah, you know, for for people who were you know who might think, oh, that's pretty neat. You can sing opera, you can sing in Italian, blah 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 blah. Um, but it was in two thousand eight, late two thousand seven, when I received a phone call from a friend of mine. And she said, you know, don't be surprised if you get a phone call um, from a presidential campaign uh, looking for organizers. Hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned your name. She said, I mentioned your name to several people. And so I guess about a week or so later, I received a phone call um, from someone. And they said, you know, I'm such and such. And I'm with uh, the Obama campaign and the Missouri campaign for change. And uh, 
we've been talking to people around the state and your name keeps coming up. And we wanted to speak with you about possibly coming on board um, to organize for the campaign. And so we discussed it and I, I agreed to, to come on board. And uh, I came back to the area where I live now to organize. And, uh, you know, had a wonderful time on the on the campaign, working, doing events and whatnot. And there was one day we were doing an event and my boss and his boss happened to be there that day. You know, so I arranged for um, a local beauty queen to come and sing the national anthem. And, you know, I said, oh, my boss and his boss are going to be here. We have to do something extra special that we normally mm -hmm. aren't going to do. So I'm going to invite people to sing, you know, God Bless America and the National Anthem. About 10 minutes before we were set to begin, I get a phone call. And our beauty queen has cold feet. She's not coming. Mm. <laughs> and so I tell my boss, okay, we're going to have to scratch, scratch the two musical numbers. And he's like, oh, man, we were looking forward to that, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, oh, wait. Didn't I read on your resume you used to be an opera singer? <laughs> uh huh. And I said, Yeah, you probably did. And he said, Well, why don't you sing it? And I said, You know, I haven't sung publicly for several years now. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing that at this point. You know, not having practice, not knowing what was going to come out or anything. And he says, Well, who's going to know? I said, well, I'll know. <laughs> you know <laughs> you and first Jesus. and foremost, <laughs> I'll know. And, you know, this is the place where I grew up. So these people are used to hearing, you know, they were used to hearing me sing. Right. Uh, growing up and in high school. And uh, I would come back and do recitals and whatnot. So they were used to hearing me sing. Um, and he says, well, I hate to pull rank, but I'm going to have to ask you to do it. So I did. And that first time I sang it, it was a little little shaky. Um, partly because of nerves. Mm. And, you know, the second time around at the next event, I did it again. And I don't know, something in that second performance kind of piqued my interest um, on what I felt while singing and what I was hearing internally and the changes in the voice that I had, I was hearing and sensing as I was singing all sort of piqued my interest. Um, and so I kind of tucked that in my back pocket and went on about my business with the rest of the campaign. And of course the campaign was successful, um, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And after the campaign, you know, I started to just kind of tinker with the idea of singing. Um, you know, I started actually getting up and warming up the voice in the morning. Yeah. Um, you know, one day I woke up and did a full warm up and pulled out an aria and started singing and said, oh, wow, this is much easier than it used to be, hmm. which surprised me. Um, you know, so I began working 
I found my lesson tapes from school, um, videotapes, and I started pulling out videotapes and working with the videotapes and, and, and realizing that, one, some of the bad habits I had the years before were gone, um, partly because I'd allowed my body, the muscle memory, to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. That I'd built up in doing those things was no longer there. So I was doing it now with this new sensations, uh, new feelings, and things were just kind of falling into place without me getting in the way, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so I did that for, for quite a while. I worked through all of my lesson tapes. And when I ran out of lesson tapes, I reached out to a friend of mine and I said, I think I need a voice teacher. And uh, so I began working with a voice teacher in Memphis. And uh, we worked together for for several years, uh, for about two years before she finally said, okay, so are you just going to keep taking voice lessons or actually going to get out and do something? Mm -hmm. I said, okay, we'll find something to do. We'll test the waters. Um, Just my luck that year, the National Opera Association was holding their conference in Memphis. So I entered their vocal competition. And uh, to make a long story short, I ended up winning. Um, <laughs> I was the the only can the only uh, competitor who um, everyone sang two arias that day. I sang all five of mine. Oh, that were on my <laughs> list, <laughs> and uh, had a, had a just wonderful experience. It was a wonderful wonderful reintroduction to to performing for me. Uh, because that's what it was. It was it was a performance. It wasn't a competition. Um, it didn't feel like a competition or audition to me. Um, and from there on, I've, I haven't looked back. And uh, it's just been a, a, a crazy wild ride over the past uh, several years. Just to circle back to your saying, uh, it began to feel easier than it did before. I think, you know, at, at least for me, I had to get over the idea that I need to please a teacher or do it right, quote unquote, exactly. and just make it beautiful or 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 do what the music is is calling for. It, it sounds like that's kind of what you're speaking to, just connecting to the music as opposed to connecting to the music through someone who is telling you you're doing it right or you're doing right. it wrong. Right. I wasn't trying to produce a certain sound to please anyone. Mm. Um, I wasn't trying to produce a certain sound that my teacher was going to like. I was producing Lemmy's sound. Yeah. And, you know, and that was one of the things I would discuss with my teacher when I was in school. Um, He would ask me to do something. And I would say, yeah, that doesn't quite feel right for me. And, you know, we would kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over it. And, you know, eventually I would give in and do what pleased him. Because that's the way I thought things were supposed to be done. Yeah. Um, but I think now, um, from that point on, once I re- made the the comeback, I've been able to to really sing with my authentic voice. Uh, is is there and you know there are a lot of singers listening to this who have teachers that are relatively 
heavy handed. I mean, what what are your words to those folks who really have someone who is, you know, expecting them to do it their way versus, well, this doesn't feel right or this is my interpretation? How how would you go about uh, advising someone to balance that these days from, from the student and maybe even young artist uh, perspective? Well, it, I think it, it requires um, a tough conversation, <laughs> you know, and it's, I mean, it has to happen. Otherwise, um, you're, you're stunting your own growth if you don't have mm. that conversation. And the necessity to have that conversation will, will dictate what you do going forward. Um, is your teacher open to that conversation? Um, if they aren't open to that conversation, what should I do then? Um, do I need to find a new teacher? Uh, would it be possible to find a new teacher if you're a student? Um, you know, if I'm on a student in the conservatory or a music school and I'm on scholarship, will that affect me if I have to change studios? Um, you know, Will it affect me later on down the road being cast in productions if I leave this teacher studio and move to someone else's studio? Mm-hmm. You know, you have the, the the politics that go along with all of that within um, within any any certain educational institution. Um, there's so much to take into consideration, but I still think the conversation needs to be had. Um, and know. as we as we move forward in the industry, you know, talking about DEI and representation and and all of those things. That idea, as you say, politics also plays a role even among Black musicians and Black singers. There are folks who will say that there's a a generational issue. Younger Black singers and older Black singers Mm -hmm. don't always get along because one group, you know, followed the rules in a way that the other group doesn't want to or or vice versa, All, all of the combinations therein. All of that to ask you, having re-entered the field how are you engaging those sorts of backroom conversations? Where where do you see us uh, finding places of unity where, you know, for the past generation or so, there has been disunity even among Black singers specifically? Well, I think that's a tough one. But, you know, that disunity that we we often have seen um in my experience especially when it's when you're dealing with people from different quote unquote generations um is usually because of a lack of knowledge hmm. um you know there have been conversations that have taken place uh, you know nationally and internationally recently um, with regards to um, equity and, and inclusion within the industry that uh, has stirred up some, you know, I would say even a bit of animosity between um, some factions, even within just black singers. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately there were instances where this faction was attacking this these individuals and going back and forth and um you know and it it saddened me one because 
the people being attacked were the ones who were doing the work. Sure. They've been doing the work to 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 bring about more inclusion. Uh, they've been working behind the scenes, not necessarily doing it for the publicity or putting their name out there to say, look what I'm doing to make sure that more of us are having opportunities on stages. Mm-hmm. More of us are having opportunities in young artist programs. Um, you know, so it, 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 it sad me in that sense to see the back and forth and knowing because I one have been the benefit beneficiary of some of the work they've done. Right. You know, to want to say, guys, hold on. No, 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 no. The, this is, this is just too much misguided energy. You know, we need to put this energy elsewhere. These people aren't the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just want to sometimes scream from the mountaintops. Do you not realize it's such a so, so-and-so has done this? They've done this. They've done this. They've... But I, I can't. I can't do that because I don't want to um, put, put these people in a position where they feel um, that, that they don't want to put themselves in. If mm-hmm. they want, if they don't want the work they're being that they're doing behind the scenes to be public knowledge, then you know, I can't go out and just put it out there for the sake of of trying to end, yeah, uh, the feud between different factions within within our community, and and to throw the younger generation some bail. You know, there are things, you know, even based on your story of leaving the industry and coming back, there there are real issues out there that people are trying to speak to. They just yes. don't see, I'll put myself in it. Oftentimes we, I don't see the progress happening quick enough or, or, right. or urgently right. enough. So, I mean, surely there is some balance there between, if, if we're going to stick to the generational conversation, there has to be some balance between, okay things have to happen a certain way or have happened a certain way and the alternative of, but let's shift things so that change can happen more immediately or more expediently. Well, and that's, a, and that's the difference between the, the, the generation, so to speak. Um, if you've come from the generation who's, who's grown up um, without the internet, mm. you may look at things a little differently. Um, you know, I, I grew up at a time when there was no internet um, or if there was, we didn't have access to it. Uh, you know, I grew up through the dial-up age, um, where, um, you know, but now things are so readily available and at hand for this upcoming generation. They're used to things, having access to things much quicker. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more difficult for them to see, um, the progress that's that's being made and it, you know, and yes, I agree in some instances it's not happening quick enough. Um, but it is happening. Um, but I think that's the, you know, when you come from the generation that's so used to having information at your fingertips right away mm-hmm. and to be able to say, okay, I want to do this and do this and do that. And within half an hour, a week, a month, accomplish that um but a lot of the work that we're dealing with 
you're also dealing with gatekeepers who are from even older generations. Sure. Um, who one may not be receptive to that change two may not have the knowledge and how to engage um, with the communities in question. Um, and three, it's just a matter of, of being scared to hmm. um, and scared to admit that they don't have the knowledge to do it. Um, but they've been in this position for so long that they don't necessarily want to give it up either. Right. Right. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch 22 in a way that you, you're, you're dealing not just within the generations between our own community, but the generations between the powers that be as well. Right. Right. And, and just to, you know, connect names to the conversation so that we aren't speaking too generally, the things that, a Leontine Price had to deal with, you know, singers today don't have to deal with all of those things because Leontine Price did. Exactly. With that being said, she may have a feeling about someone like me going to an audition and not singing any of the required pieces and bringing in my favorite gospel tune or whatever. She may also have an opinion about that at the same time. So exactly. it, it sounds like it's yeah. about balance at the, at the yeah. end of the day. You, you got to find that balance and, and, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, you, you just said it perfectly, you know, because of, of artists like Leontine, because of artists like George Shirley, Simon Estes, Grace Bumbry, right. You know, they've gone through, let's just, they went through hell so that we don't have to, mm-hmm. yep. um, the hell that we go are going through is, is a little bit better because of the hell they went through right right so it's yeah so we have to find that balance and to say okay in context if we look at it from this and this aspect you can see the progression you can see the progress um but we just have to find ways to communicate that from generation to generation so that we don't get those um the gaps of of kind of working against ourselves yep yep Grow, growing up i went you know you reminded me of you know we were talking about uh the church earlier i went through a church split you know and in, in oh. my adolescence so you know we don't we don't need that of um, in music period but certainly not when it comes to uh artists of color and black artists because you know we got to stick together the the best we way do. we can and and we di- dialogue i i see as a way of of doing that i, I want to wrap up with an otello question but uh okay. but b- before i throw that uh at you what do you have coming up how can folks learn more about uh what's on your calendar and, and where oh, you'll be gosh. singing well, next we've got i've got a, a quite a busy season coming up uh we'll be kicking it off next week with two performances in lincoln nebraska hmm. uh one with the lincoln symphony and then i'm going to be doing a recital of all spirituals um in lincoln as well and then after that, we have the uh, we'll be opening the season with the San Diego Symphony with the Verity Requiem. Mm. Um, then I'll be traveling back to my alma mater for a performance of Nathaniel Detz, uh, The Order of Moses. Uh, I'm also going to be joining the uh, the roster of the Metropolitan Opera as a cover artist. 
uh, covering Rodimaze and Aida uh, this fall. Uh, definitely excited about that. And uh, in January, I have my Carnegie Hall debut coming up. Booked and busy. Amen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Booked and busy and grateful. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this season. It's going to be be a lot of fun. Uh, nice balance of, uh, of the operatic, the, the concerts, the recitals. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So blackface has been a conversation in the past month or so, <laughs> a couple few months in the mm-hmm. world of opera. And a question that I have gotten from a lot of people that I never would have thought about was, okay, fine. So we have these characters who are supposed to be black or supposed to be brown skinned. Should we just say that every Aida, every Otello has to be a black singer? Um, my answer to that question is fine. If, if someone wants to, <laughs> to come with that sort of energy, fine. Only hire black people for Otello. I wonder what your opinions are on, on that issue, that question. I, I think if we were to do that, I think it would become more limiting for black singers. Hmm. Um, because one... We'd be relegated every, to that role, maybe. Right. Not every black tenor is an Otello. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the role of Otello requires a vocality that is, uh, that is that's rare. Um, and not just anyone can pick up that score and walk out on a stage and expect to be able to sing it successfully. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's been called a voice killer for a reason. Um, but I would not want to be relegated to just singing Otello mm-hmm. or, you know, being told um, the, the, the analogy I use is if we were to just limit saying, only black singers can sing Aida. Only black singers can sing Otello. Only Asian singers can sing Madame Butterfly or mm-hmm. Tour and Dot. You're basically going to almost be eliminating these pieces from the repertoire. Because um, you're going to go maybe decades without having a black tenor capable of singing the role of Otello mm. or an Asian soprano capable of singing uh, Madame Butterfly or Turandot or Liu. Um, so if you're willing to sacrifice these operas completely and remove them from the repertoire for for long extended periods of time, then sure, go for it. Um, and I had an interesting conversation recently and I said, well, what are we going to do if and when the day comes where the Gershwin estate no longer requires that poor game best be done by black singers. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do when you now have to compete against thousands of sopranos, white sopranos and sopranos of other races for the role of Serena or, or Bess? You know, what are we going to do then? Are we going to, I mean, are we going to protest that or what are we going to do? But I mean, it's 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 such a, a slippery slope in a way that if you start, I think if you start relegating people to roles by race, um, that it becomes very limiting. It limits people as artists. 
Um, and as an artist, that's the last thing I want to be is limited. Um, I personally don't see, and I know some people are not going to like this, but I don't see uh, the use of makeup for the role of Otello as blackface. Um, I don't see it being used as a means of creating a caricature of black people. I don't see it being used as a means of disrespecting black people, um, which are both things that I see as the cornerstone of, of what true blackface is. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there have been instances where the makeup may have been taken a little bit too far may have been a little bit overboard. You often see that in some of the European houses um, who may not necessarily understand or really care about the history we have here. Um, but I think for the most part within the States, I think it's been, it's been done for the most part quite tastefully in a way. And I think if you remove um, remove Aida's blackness, you remove Otello's blackness, you're, you're not just, uh, you remove Otello's blackness, you're already taking away much of the innate tension that's in the opera of someone being revered yet alone someone who doesn't look like anyone else, look like everyone else on stage. Um, and two, I think it's just, you know, people are working so hard now to erase history, to rewrite slavery, to make it more palatable. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I think we've sacrificed enough as a people with having our 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 history erased, our, our heritage is erased, our, um, you know, we've, we've sacrificed enough that, it, you know, I don't think we need to be erasing ourselves or people like live like us from, uh, from the operas that we love to perform. Um, as long as it's done in a tasteful manner, uh, bronzing is the, is the term I prefer um, for this as opposed to, to blackface. Um, because I, I think when we use that term, it automatically comes with so much baggage behind it and so much negativity behind it that it skews and disrupts the conversation that needs to be had. Yes, we can do this in a way that's, that's tasteful, but once you throw that term out there, blackface, yellow face um now i've seen people throwing around the the term jew face mm -hmm. um with the upcoming uh release of the uh of the, of bernstein, the, uh, the, film. the bernstein docu yep. docu film um you know so it's where where does it stop sorry uh where does it end um it's not it almost feels like there's a competition to see who can be the most persecuted or who's the most persecuted in a way now. Um, and a lot of it has to do with trying to lessen 
the persecution or minimize the persecution that people of color have gone through, um, that, that Jews have gone through, um, that Asians have gone through. Um, you know, so it's just my humble point of view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Anna Netrebko. Never thought I <laughs> singing would hear it. O from Aida and all of her skin darkening makeup greatness. I'm also noticing the wig that is mm. very uh, reminiscent of, I wasn't of black hair. Mm. Don't first of all don't don't say that I have never compromised because if it's anybody who I ever thought. I would never feature on this podcast called Triloquy is Anna Netrebko. Same, okay? Same. Okay? But as we heard there in the closing of my conversation with Lemmy, there is a diversity of thought surrounding blackface, so-called blackface, skin darkening, makeup, whatever phrase we want to use. We aren't even on the same page as black people. And I guess that's fine because, you know, no community is a monolith. And, you know, black folks, we have many varying opinions, even within the world of Western classical music. I am un so uncomfortable looking at this video of, of Anna Netrebko in this makeup and you know you don't have the uh subtitles if you're listening to this but you know in in this aria she's talking about how you know she's so sad she'll never see her homeland again that that is an emotional connection that a black singer can make not only with the story and the individuals tied to you know that that idea but people today you mm. know i may never see africa mm. and maybe in the moment my hearing a black woman sing that on stage would be my connection and i'm now i'm even more engaged mm. with with what's with what's happening but it's hard for me to even have that emotional engagement with the performance when i'm looking at what to me reads as blackface understanding scott that there is a diversity of thought even among black people around this issue does that impact your feeling about what we're looking at, about what the world is continuing to talk about in the uh, in in the world of opera, anyway, as it pertains to to this issue. No, I still think it's wrong. It doesn't change anything for me. No disrespect to Lemmy, you know, and um, that's just not the way that that I see it. I don't know how to move forward because my opinion isn't going to change. On it, I, it's just not. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I can see myself as flexible in many ways, but this is not that mm -hmm. um you know we we, we kind of had a similar discussion uh i had a similar discussion with karen slack a few weeks ago when when she was featured and you know it, it just seems like an an issue of being entrenched in the tradition and having some sort of context for it versus not because at the end of the day we can talk about the nuance and the history and all of those things when it comes to stage makeup but if we're trying to engage new audiences in my opinion this is not how you do that, right? Because my mom is gonna grab her pocketbook and 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 walk out. Mm -hmm. You know, y'all think I'm a lot. My father, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to find someone to speak to about that. You know, that if right? he's if, if he's at the theater, you know. So those are two audience. Those are two people who don't go to opera 
that could go to opera that could be among these new audiences that these opera houses want to uh, uh, develop and and engage, but they they are not going to sit there and look at that. They, right. That that is just not going to happen. So I don't know. Shout out to Lemmy Pulliam. All all respect, you know. And I think it's good for people to disagree when it comes to to certain things. Even black folks in the field of classical music, that diversity of thought is is very important. I think we need to continue to explore this conversation because this is going to keep audiences from really being as diverse as institutions and artists alike want them to be because I'm not going up in there. No, and, me and, neither. And sitting there and looking at that and and saying nothing. There are a lot of black people who would go in there and look at that and not say anything and and be completely fine with it. And then you have all sorts of you know nuanced opinions in between. We gotta well, we gotta continue with the dialogue. I guess is the 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 moral of the story. We don't always agree, but we can gain perspective through that dialogue mm-hmm. all right well you know we also have a, a little bit of a racy <laughs> triloquy fourth movement th- this week so we're gonna go into it with an excerpt from a movie that is very 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 important to me this is arabian nights from aladdin i'm gonna share a little bit of this with y'all and then we'll talk on the other side of this in the fourth movement I come from a land, from a faraway place Where the caravan camels roam Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense It's barbaric, but hey, it's home When the wind's from the east and the sun's from the west And the sand in the glass is right Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly to another Arabian night. Arabian nights, like Arabian days. More often than not, are hotter than hot in a lot of good ways. Arabian nights. That boy good. First of all, <laughs> first of all, Bruce is it Bruce Adler? Uh, that boy, good. Mm. You know, sh- shout out to that performance. We got to talk about the Little Mermaid, sure. And what and what, folks? People are not okay out here. But let me not get ahead of myself. All right, we got into this fourth movement with that excerpt from Disney's Aladdin because something I always, always, always find myself returning to. I even told this story many, many times on. Um, public radio when when we when I would play stuff like Nielsen's Aladdin Suite and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when this animated feature came out in 1990, whatever, maybe 91, 92, um, my mom put some clothes on us and brought us to the movie theater. We didn't grow up exactly poor, but going to the movies wasn't something that we did. Same. Like that that just wasn't a, a regular thing. So for us to go to the movies and then moreover to the movies to see a cartoon, mm. that was something that you know, was really out outside of, of what I was used to. So we go and we watch this movie that fully engages me and, um, you know, impacts the way I look at many things. I remember after going to watch Aladdin uh, in second grade, we uh, went and saw the Nutcracker on one of those school field trip things. Yep. And the Arabian dance really grabbed my attention because I was thinking about going to the movies and, and seeing Aladdin. Oh. Anyway, you know, when we, when we get home, my mom is is like, did you see 
who was on screen, those, those they were brown. They were brown people. Mm. And oh my gosh, it almost chokes me up. I'm, and again, I'm sure I've told the, the story a lot on, on this podcast, but my mom saw it as a part of her responsibility to for her children to have the opportunity to see brown people on screen in an animated feature because that's something that you don't see every day. And Aladdin Jasmine them ain't even black. Right, you know, they, right. they, these are pe- these are depictions of Middle Eastern people. But that was close enough mm-hmm. for my mom to feel like that that is something that had to be done. Do you have any um sort of visceral or very memorable experiences with animated m- movies, even 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 Disney films or something from the Disney canon? Let me preface this by saying I was never, I did not grow up being a Disney fan. Yeah. I always, I I didn't watch Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse or any of those. Um, To me, it seemed that that was all silly stuff. (laughs) You know, it was like looking at it and thinking, you know, here I am at nine years old and I'm a little old for this, was my opinion. Um, There was uh, The Black Hole, but that wasn't animated. That was live action, but a frightening film for 1979. Um, Maybe the animated one, The Rescuers. But again, it's an alternate memory attached to it because that's the first one where my mom dropped us off and left us there to fend for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that meant I got to play- coming of age sort of thing. And I got to play the video games out in in the lobby. That's, That's what I was about. So you see the difference in our our experiences, you know, it's sort of just a thing that that was for you, but because of the power of representation, my relationship with the the whole thing is a little different mm-hmm. and 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 a, and a bit more emotional. When I see people debating about whether or not the new Ariel should be black, you know. Shout out to Hallie ba- uh, Bailey, Hallie Bailey, who is going to do a, a a great job with it. And no, she, you know, and that's the thing. The character Ariel is a beautiful singer. Like that, that was a part of the whole thing. So mm-hmm. of course, if they're going to do a live action, they need to get a a great singer. And you know, Hallie Bailey is that. But all over the internet. Not that I'm seeing directly. I'm seeing people repost a lot of things or complain about what they're seeing on their timelines. Mm-hmm. But just the idea that folks are upset about the skin tone of an animated sea creature, mm-hmm. considering the fact that you have stories like mine that it wasn't it wasn't no black folks you know depicted on in these films at least in a positive way for a generation sure. or more. You sure. know, so now we finally have a little bit of that in in live action form, and people have a problem. It 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 showcases the fundamental issue in all of these conversations that we have when it comes to decolonizing classical music, diversifying playlists, taking so called risks when it comes to what you present on stage, and now to uh, the the identity the the physical skin of of this uh, fictional character, it all just boils down to racism. Mm -hmm. And I know that we are so afraid of using that word and that word, you know, just gets thrown around to the extent to where we don't even, many of us don't even know what it means anymore. Well, I know what it means, but, you know, people uh, allege that it loses its power when we just throw that around. But to me, this is exactly that in an ecosystem where there are so many children who still don't see themselves depicted in media made for them, Mm -hmm. a critique of a black mermaid 
for me, is nothing more than racism. It's well, as simple as that. I would say that people need to go back and do some research because there's plenty being done about the Hans Christian Andersen story, the original being gay allegory about uh, a gay man who falls in love and is rebuffed. And in the end, I should say, Ariel dies. The Little right. Mermaid dies. Okay? Right. It does not end the way that you think. And, and the responses that I have enjoyed are people saying, oh, y'all are upset about this? Okay, well, let's take this movie, let's take this mo that movie and mm -hmm. just make everybody black. You know, right now I'm thinking about uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, Dell set me down <laughs> in front of all nine to 12 hours of, <laughs> of that content. You know, I, I know people say it a lot on the internet, you know, for folks familiar with Lord of the Rings, the Eagles just weren't gonna do nothing. <laughs> like the, the first time through, you know, because they, uh, Gandalf talks about the Eagles in the first 20 or 30 minutes of the of the movie. I'm like, okay, well, then they need to fly the ring up to the volcano. <laughs> right. Anyway, let me not chase the <laughs> rabbit off the trail. You know, not a single black person in all of those hours of media, not a single black person on all of these dozens, even hundreds of concert programs across the country, not a single black person represented in hours of radio programming, maybe mm -hmm. more today. Okay, but certainly not when I entered the field. No one, no one bats an eye at that. But as soon as one mermaid swims out of the ocean and is black, it's time for people to start talking about, oh, don't erase my history and, and X, Y, and Z. People are really not okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to say, Scott, you were getting into some stuff in the in the second movement, talking about realizing uh, the sacrifices you've made and and sort of looking at where you've been uh, beaten and bashed. You know, my Buddhism at this point, is just about the only thing that keeps me in the game. Every day, I imagine what it would be like to just take all of my linen clothing, you know, my gohunzen and, and my bassoon, you know, maybe, maybe a couple other things, go live in a hut with the rest of the hippies out in the woods mm -hmm. and mind my business. Yeah. You know, that, that idea has been running through my mind more and more. But I understand the responsibility I have with the privileges that I have and with the opportunities I've been given to try to, to make a change. Um, all of that to say, you know, these conversations make me so tired and, and get me closer to that burnout point. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to keep moving forward, but what I want folks to understand that it is hard out here mm -hmm. for people of color to see y'all arguing over stuff like this. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're people, we're 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 human, you know. We're not mermaids. We're we're human beings. So to see this kind of discourse, mm -hmm. it's fucking tiring. Yeah, it is. It is really tiring. I know that you went got on your soapbox when it came to um uh, the third sister and Obi Wan. Yeah. Uh, was it Obi Wan Kenobi yeah. and, and Obi Wan? You know, we we all have our breaking points, <laughs> but for me, this was that. So, you know, to all of the people who have something to say about a black mermaid, I'm not going to say fuck y'all and none of that like I've done in the past, but consider the human beings on the other side of these arguments you're making. Do you just not care? You know, how, how we feel? Are, are we are we not humans to to you from from your perspective? You know, to pull on something, I'll, I'll wrap up here to pull on something that uh, Paviel, again, shout out to Paviel French. She said last weekend, she talked about how there is a very obvious reason to invest in um, 
family, to platform family, to, you know, to do all of that stuff if you have the means, you know, talking about generational wealth and and all of that. And then there are reasons to not invest in other places. She believes that it's a lack of seeing other people's humanity mm-hmm. that's at the the foot of that, you yes. know, but, but black people aren't actually people. We don't see them as people. So who cares how they feel about arguments about a, a black mermaid? Who cares how they, how they feel if, you know, their cultural or, or their aesthetics aren't represented on our stages or, or in our, our, our radio, who, who, who gives a damn, you know, that is, that is what it comes across as. Mm-hmm. And it always falls on us. It always falls on people of color and our allies and our accomplices to do the labor of fixing this thing while the racists who are are sitting up here typing things about a black mermaid just have a a, a great rest of their day that the, you know they, they're not bothered by the police they go to the bank and they're fine they can sit down at any seat at the restaurant you know i i could i, I could go on and on sure. um I'm, I'm here for unity um here on land and under the sea <laughs> I, I i suppose <laughs> but listen Y'all are not making it easy. If there's someone in your periphery, someone in your community, someone in your in, in the sound of your voice who is saying something about Halle Bailey as the Little Mermaid, do me a favor and get them together, okay? Because I can't be there. Otherwise, I would. Thank y'all so much for joining us again. We'll see you next week.